I would have started early. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, glad to see you all. Uh, just a reminder, if you're on the live stream, to please type your name in so that we know you're here, and you can feel free to submit questions that way. Um, I just wanted to say, I know I brought one of these in a few weeks ago. This is a, called a bulletin. You go into just about any Catholic church, they're going to have something like this. You'll find them next to all the entrances uh, on Sundays. And this goes through sort of what's happening around the cathedral or the parish you happen to be in uh, over the course of that next week. And just a reminder, anything you find in here, you're very welcome to come to. Uh, anything, any of the events, any of the groups or anything like that, please feel very welcome. Uh, to that end, um, we have a concert series that puts on productions of sacred music a couple of times a quarter. And we have another concert coming up uh, this upcoming Friday. Um, and um, Scott, who organizes those concerts, has uh, set aside a number of free tickets for anybody in RCIA who would like to cool. attend. Um, I'm just going to leave this up here. It's this Friday, as I said, um, at 8 o'clock, and it's a, it's a group that I don't can, know. Can I say something about them? Please, yeah. It, they're one of my favorite groups. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And I, okay. I listen to them all the time. No kidding, okay. On YouTube. They, they, yeah, they're great. They yeah. do um, you know, sacred music, but they can also do um, more popular things done all with voices, and they imitate instruments. And Anyway, they're, okay. they're spectacular. Nice. Do you have a ticket yet? We'll get you a ticket if you want. I, I, do you have one? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, I'll just leave that over there on the table. And uh, like I said, if you'd like one, you can email me. Uh, you should all have my email address, ZacharyPovis at archstl.org, which also happens to be in here on page two. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think most of you have, but if you haven't filled out the registration page that would have gone and been included in the initial email that you got with all the instructions as far as where we meet and such, it would be helpful if you haven't done that to go ahead and fill that out just so we know who's here. Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and lead us with a prayer and turn us over to, to Larry here. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Almighty God, you are the author of all that is good. We praise you and we give thanks to you for the opportunity to come together today to learn more about the ways in which you've revealed yourself to us in the course of history, that in coming to know you better, we might love you all the more. We commend to you, Lord, uh, today in a particular way, all those who are suffering due to war in and around Israel. We ask that you please uh, bless the families of those who have lost loved ones. We ask that you bless all those innocent people whose lives have been lost or who have been taken hostage. And by your grace, Lord, please grant peace to that part of the world. We commend to you all of these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Welcome. All right. My pleasure. All right. What's up? Thanks, Father. Sure. You can even, yeah, you can make your getaway if you want. Hey. Okay. Um, before we start, any questions on, so last week we did the Trinity, and that is not the easiest topic. Um, so if anybody wants to ask anything about that. You all? I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me give it just a, a super brief summary. So we, the key Catholic, or we could simply say Christian belief um, on, on the Trinity is that from all eternity, God is not a solitary. Right? So from all eternity, God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not something that starts at, uh, at the Annunciation or Incarnation. And um, that means from all eternity, God has an inner life and a life of communion that we wouldn't have known by philosophy or couldn't have deduced or inferred 
um, from the world, but God has revealed it, and above all, in, um, in Jesus, who revealed that he's the son, right? So that's what we did last time. He revealed that he is the eternal son who has come down from heaven and therefore has existed from everlasting. Right? And, um, and he also revealed that the spirit who's spoken of in the Old Testament um, is um, a person who um, both he and the father send. And that shows us that the spirit um, proceeds from the father and the son as the bond of unity between them. Right? And so he's the spirit of love. And so it makes sense that Jesus' gift to us is to send his spirit to us to teach us how to love and to make the unity, right? So that's the hardest thing in human affairs is how to bring um, proud human beings into one body, right? And that's the spirit's task. And we'll talk about that more when we look at the church, right? So the father um, isn't sent, right? He's the father because he's, we could say, the eternal source of the son, and the spirit, right? So they're all equally eternal, but the father is the not from another. The son is from the father, and the spirit is from the father and the son as their love, right? And so the father sends the son into the world in the middle of history, right? That's the incarnation. We'll look at that next week. The um, son sends the spirit on Pentecost, Right? And continues, the Spirit continues to be sent through the sacraments of the church. Right? And you will receive him um, at um, the Easter Vigil um, in a special way in confirmation. Right? And we'll talk about the sacraments later on. Questions on that? So the Son is the eternal word of the Father, right? and the Spirit, we could say, is the gift of love. All right, so our topic for today is creation um, and the original creation in, um, in Eden and the original sin and, and the fall and our current condition as a result of that. All right, so that's, but before we get to the fall, um, let's say something about creation and God's original plan. Yeah, and so um, the Catechism speaks about when it's the first line on God the Father is we believe in God, the Father Almighty. Right? So that Almighty is simply the fact that God um, is. He is infinite being. And if he, since he's infinite being, he can create um, whatever he wills that would be a participation, something, some finite part of his goodness, his beauty, his truth. And that means that he has dominion over what he creates. All right, so it's impossible for something that God has created to um, not be under his dominion. All right, so God is almighty for whom nothing is impossible. And so he's, his omnipotence is universal. Right? It's mysterious, though. And it's mysterious because he chooses normally to, uh, to not exercise it directly. In other words, God loves to give dignity to his creatures. 
And so he allows his creatures even to rebel against him. So my, my father-in-law has passed away, God bless his soul, but he, we used to always have, um, frequently have arguments about this subject. He was Jewish atheist. And he would say, um, I'll believe in God, in your God, if um, he zaps the evildoer before he you know, commits child abuse. And the fact is we know that God doesn't do that, right? He doesn't zap us before we do before we sin, but he has long-suffering patience, and he doesn't stop us, right? Um, and in fact, that's a pretty good thing, right? Because if he were to zap the evildoer, what would happen? Um, there would be nobody left except for Mary, who we'll talk about in a couple sessions from now. And so he doesn't do that, and that's not because he doesn't have the power to do it, right? So God is almighty, but he's equally merciful and patient, right? So that's why it's mysterious. In other words, he's got power, um, but he <clears throat> veils his power or holds it in check, right, out of goodness. And we see this power above all in the fact that there's a, a universe, right? So God's power is shown in the fact that none of us made ourselves and um, we've received being ultimately from God. Right? And that's true of the whole universe. Right? So his power is shown in the fact that he creates. And why would he create? So that's where the, it's important that God isn't solitary. Right? It's not as, he doesn't create because he's lonely. He creates out of pure wanting to give. Right? To give a share, to communicate a part of his blessedness. And in fact, not just a part, but he wants to maximally communicate his goodness, and he maximally communicates it by creating all different levels of goodness. Right? In other words, it's, God is more good by making um, invisible things, we'll talk about the angels, and visible beings who've got bodies, like us. And his, his goodness is shown that he wants to create all the levels, inanimate things, rocks, right? And suns and moons, etc., and then living things. And then in living things, plants, animals, and rational beings. And his glory is shown by making all the levels, right? It's like in the zoo. The glory of God is the zoo is full. It's not just, I don't know, the highest level. Yeah. Questions on that? All right, so God creates um, not by any necessity, right? So it's not as if there's something in God that makes him create. If, he, if we're here, it's because he chose to make us and there's no other reason for choosing us than that he loves us. He loves us even before we exist, um, and that love leads him to create us. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so we read about this in Genesis. right? So we'll talk a little about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 today. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see that in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. This is, by the way, this is Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. Um, I'm a Michelangelo fan. And uh, yeah, that's my favorite work of art, probably. Um, and so this he's given here, um, kind of God creating the, the planets, and then here on the sixth day, creating Adam. And so I think we talked a little about this. We said that in um, the first chapter of Genesis, um, it, <clears throat> the first thing he does is create light, right? So let there be light, and there was light. 
right? And then we see a slow unfolding, and it's divided into six days, right? And we don't need to interpret that as six 24-hour periods, or rather we shouldn't interpret it as six 24-hour periods, because the sun isn't even created until the fourth day, right? So a 24-hour day doesn't make any sense in the beginning. And so they're periods or ages. In other words, what Genesis 1 is showing us that God created the universe not all at once. I mean, ready-made and with human beings in it, but in a process that starts with what's most basic, right? Light. And then you get, you know, an unfolding planets, sun, etc., and distinctions. And then on the last days, life, right? So life first in the oceans and then on land. Um, plants, and then animals, right? So that's the work of the six days. And then in the middle of the sixth day, the last thing that he makes is Adam and Eve, <clears throat> which is simply the Hebrew words for man and, and uh, woman, basically, um, our first parents. And um, yeah, how did, so how did he create all of these things. Um, Genesis doesn't directly tell us, but one thing we can infer from it is that he created the world from nothing. In other words, it wasn't as if there was something pre-existing, God's work of creation, right? So God made everything ultimately out of nothing. And then once things are in being, he can make new things out of old things, right? In other words, bodies um, decay and become other bodies, right? So, but God is still ultimately creating everything out of nothing. And it's an ordered creation, right? So he makes his world in order, and he governs it. I wonder if I've got. Let me go. Yeah, let me go back to. Um, I, I forgot to bring my Bible today, just when I need it. Um, but in any case, you, you know this. Does anybody have a Bible here? Terrible. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Never, yeah, so I had a theology professor. Never, ever teach a theology class without a Bible. Yeah. Especially when we were talking about Genesis. But in case, the, um, so the work of the six days, what we see is at the end of every day, um, God looked out and saw that it was good. And then on the sixth day, he creates man, and at the end of it, he said it was, how does it go? Very good. All right, so we can see that everything is good, but the creation of, um, of man um, is very good. And then it's, it's also distinguished from the other things because um, everything else bears some likeness to God. But when he gets to man, he says, let us make man in our image and likeness. All right, so this is the first we get of an us. Let us make, and so we talked about that, I think, last time. That was the first hint in Scripture of God being a communion of persons. Let us make man in our image and likeness. And then image, everything bears some likeness to God. Thanks, Father. But, um, but we're in his image, and that's a better likeness, right? So um, Michelangelo, when he makes, paints Adam, so this, we could say, is an image rather than just, uh, I don't know, um, a blob or some a shadow, right? And so an, what that's telling us is that we're more like God than anything else in the visible universe. 
And why are we more like God? Anybody? It's not hard. Okay, but what, what makes us, what in us makes us in his image? What part of us? Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly, because we're rational. We've got reason, and that's what um, the lion, the bear, the dolphin doesn't have, right? And so all of those things were said to be good, but they weren't said to be an image, right? And so we're in his image because we're rational. We've got reason. And because we're rational, we also have free choice, right? That because we can grasp a universal like good, and we can grasp that there are different means to, let's say, happiness, that makes us free to choose between the different paths. And so we're set out from all the other creatures under us by being rational and therefore given free choice. And because we have free choice, we've got responsibility, right? Moral responsibility. And therefore, there'll be praise or blame, right? Maybe in you know, teaching a pet, you give it praise or blame, but it's properly only a free creature that deserves praise or blame, and therefore reward or punishment, depending how we live our lives. Right? And so by being made in his image, we're capable of sharing in his eternal life. That's where we started, right, two months ago or six weeks ago when we started this class, the very first paragraph. Right? God made us to share, and we're able to share because we're rational and free, and the donkey or the dolphin or my pet isn't able to do that, um, lacking that um, reason and the ability to love and to freely choose, all right? So that's made in his image. Make sense to everyone? And every human being is made in his image, right? So this is something that is a great equalizer. Every human being is made in his image, and there's no human being who can lose that image. We might not be able to use our reason, right? And that would be, say, a baby, not yet at the age of reason. But the baby's still equally made in the image and likeness. I, I got one, thanks. Oh. Not probably won't end up using Thank you, Marsh. That's my way, Marsh. Um, and so, um, but then there's that second word, image and likeness. And so the, the tradition of the church, so Hebrew poetry doesn't ever say something once, right? To, to make it solemn, you've got to say it twice. And so you, you might think, well, image and likeness, they mean the same thing. But the tradition of the church actually sees a difference there. We're made in his image, every human being, but we're called to greater likeness to him. And that comes to us through other gifts that he gives above our nature that we'll see in a minute. And that is his grace. So God makes us in his image, but calls us to a greater likeness so that we can share in his eternal life. Right? And we're going to talk more about that later, but we call that gift grace. Grace by which he um, calls us and actually gives us a greater likeness. So that's why image and likeness, yes, we could take them as synonyms, but we can also take them as two, a two-step process. He makes us all in his image good with reason, but he wants to take us above our nature and give us a supernatural likeness. Right, so I just use this word supernatural. We're going to use that a lot in this course. So it's really important for, um, for Catholic theology. And the, the key idea is, is really simple. Human nature is good, but God didn't just make us to have human nature. 
He made us, we saw in the very first paragraph, the very first class, to share in his life. And that's not natural for any creature because God is infinitely above any creature. So if God wants to take a creature and bring that creature to share in his intimate life, he's got to do something above nature. And we call it supernatural. All right, so natural image, supernatural likeness. Okay. Getting ahead of myself here. All right. Um, any other questions on um, another thing we see there in that verse of Genesis? I'm sorry, it's not up on the board. But um, this is what we're talking about is Genesis one. So that stands for Genesis. 26 to 28. That's where it speaks about the creation of Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And it, we're in the image of God who's communion, and, and the text stresses male and female, he made them, to show that both man and woman are equally in the image, equally called to the likeness, and are called to communion as he is communion. Okay? All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's an analogy, an analogy, a, um, a comparison made between God being um, this us, which isn't spelled out there, but we know it means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and those three are in communion, and so He makes man male and female to be in communion with each other, okay? I wonder if I, I should have looked at this beforehand. Okay, yeah, we'll come back to this. Okay, um, we'll come back to Genesis in just a minute. And another thing we see is that God, if God makes everything, he doesn't just let it I don't know, run its course. So we said God is almighty, but he very often doesn't intervene. But that doesn't mean he just lets things run by chance. God governs the creation that he's made. And we call it providence. Right? So this is of huge importance. So I, I was raised an atheist. Right? So I was an atheist till I was 29. And if you're an atheist, do you think that there's a providence? No, right? It wouldn't make any sense if there's no God to... Um, the word providence simply means exercising care, governing, um, guiding his creation. And so um, for the atheist, everything that happens is chance. But if you believe in God, then there can't ultimately be something that's simply merely chance. God's providence extends to everything. Right? And Jesus talks about that in the Gospels. He says, there's no sparrow that falls to the ground without your father caring for it. Right? All your, the hairs of your head are counted. Um, meaning that God has providence. All right, that doesn't mean he's going to keep all my hair, necessarily. Um, but it means that nothing is going to happen without his providential design. Which means that when bad things happen, what should we think? We should think that God has a plan even if I don't get it, right? And that requires faith. Yeah. All right, so God has a plan, 
and nothing can ultimately escape it. And even Satan, um, or you know, Hitler, doesn't escape the plan, even though they try, right, by rebelling against his plan. Um, but this plan of God's providence, he doesn't like to exercise all by himself. He wants us to be participants in his providence. And this is what he calls us to. This is really important. Um, everything in human life um, is part of this. Just take parents, right? So um, parents are called to exercise providence over their children. First of all, bring them into being in the first place. And then, you know, educating them and taking care of them. And in doing that, we're agents of God's providence, right? Every um, exercise of governing, you know, whether it's a teacher in class, whether it's, you know, president, the United States, Congress, whatever it, whatever it may be, um, all of that is acting as an agent of God's providence. All friendship, we're called to be providence for our, our friends, etc. Right? Every work of service, right? So, so God has providence, but he wants us to be his agents. And that's a glory, right, and a gift. And he res while respecting our freedom, he calls us, he asks us to cooperate with him, right? And he gives us the ability to do it simply through a good use of our freedom and our reason, okay? Questions on that? I think it's a simple idea, right? Uh-huh, no, okay. And part of the way we can be agents of his providence is by praying for one another. So it's not only by doing things, but equally by praying that we can exercise, you know, be agents of his prov providence. And that means that sometimes God will, even though he wants to help, he will sometimes withhold help because I'm not asking for him to help, whether it's for myself or for someone else. And that's because he wants us to be involved, right, cooperators in his providence. So this is why we're called to pray for one another and why it really makes a difference. If I don't pray, let's say for you, um, I don't want to make it so, sound so hard as that, but um, if, um, in, in the life of the church and in the world, right, things more good will happen when more prayers are raised for them. Okay? And God's grace um, spurs us to do that, right? So very often people might say, ah, I feel called to pray for this person. Why? His grace is urging me to become a cooperator in that way. And it's equally with action, right? Both with prayer and with action. And that's a huge dignity, right? That God wants us to be co-workers. All right, this leads to the great problem. If God is omnipotent, um, and he exercises providence over everything and nothing escapes his providence, why is it that there's evil in the world? And part of that, we need to wait a few minutes, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but the general, a general answer we can make is that um, God permits evil only to bring about some greater good. And we do exactly the same thing, right? Think of parents raising children. It's not, it's, for one thing, it's impossible to take away all dangers, but it wouldn't even be a good thing, right? Because then your children would be too sheltered, et cetera. And so um, we also allow certain evils to happen in order to bring about greater goods, 
right? Think of training in sports, etc. So um, God does on an infinitely greater scale what we also do, and that is we permit certain evils for greater goods. That doesn't mean that God is doing the evil, right? God doesn't ever do evil. He doesn't ever will um, moral evil. Let me make a distinction, two kinds of evil. Um, there's a physical evil. All right, I'm looking at it. That's not a cast, but all right. So physical evil when something happens to our body, and likewise in the animal world, right? Death of animals is a physical evil. Um, and in fact, it's part of the course of nature that the, the good, the health of the lion depends on the death of the deer. Right? And it's just built into the natural cycle that the health of human beings is the death of whatever the chicken I had for lunch or, or whatever it was. Right? And so um, we call those physical evils. And God doesn't will the physical evil per se, but what he wills is the natural order, which is good. All right? It's not as if God wants the death of the deer, but he wants the life of the lion. Okay? Um, that's physical evil. God never, ever wills moral evil, right? So he doesn't ever want someone, and moral evil, we'll talk about it more later, but basically we're talking moral evil is the same as sin. And sin is an act done deliberately against God's order, against my conscience in which I can become aware of God's order. In other words, against God's law insofar as it's written on my heart and in my conscience. God doesn't ever want us to go against our conscience and go against his law. But he permits us to do so against the advice of my father-in-law that I was mentioning earlier because he wants us to be free and he is merciful and wants us to have second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth, tenth chances. All right? Not infinite chances because life comes to an end. But we get chances as long as we're alive. Right? In other words, he gives us this life, we can think of it, is a kind of trial in which, yes, there are temptations um, and we're called to do good. Right? We're called to overcome sin, to say no to sin, and to convert and, and bring our hearts in line with his. Right? And that's what this life is for. Right? And we're given a certain time that we can call uh, the time of our trial, and that's the time of our lifetime, and nobody knows how long that will be. And that's very wise. Right? Um, if we knew the length of our trial, that, would, um, that might lead us to think, well, I can, don't need to worry about this today. I'll worry about it tomorrow. But I don't know that I'll get it tomorrow. Okay. So God permits evil for the sake of greater goods. One of those greater goods is freedom. Another greater good is that we can, um, there's a beautiful thing that is repentance. Right? So God permits us to stumble and fall so that we can get up again and um, with um, a deeper love than we had before. Right? And I, we think we've all experienced this in our lives, that after, um, after some kind of moral fall, we can more greatly appreciate, for one thing, our, be aware of our weakness, be aware of our need for, for God and his mercy, and be aware of the good that we're being called to. 
I know. And, um, and then also moral evil, the existence of it, God permits it for the sake of other goods, like the good of our forgiving our enemy, right? which is a great good. Being faithful in trial is a great good. Doing service to others who are um, in need because of some kind of physical moral evil is a great good. So the fact that there are evils in the world makes possible greater goods that couldn't otherwise be in the world. Right? Let's suppose there were no suffering in the world at all. That would be great, we would think. But it would also mean there would be no good of caring for the sick, caring for the, those who are troubled. Which would mean a level of good not present in the world. I, questions on that? And the greatest good that evil makes possible is the fact that God enters into his world to redeem us from it. Right? If there had never been any sin, we wouldn't have gotten um, God incarnate dying for us on a cross. We'll come back to that next time. Questions on that? All right, usually there should be questions on this. Like this is like the hardest problem. Why, why does God permit evil in the world? Especially, all right, it's one thing to answer like I did on the blackboard. But it's another thing when it's in your life, right? And it's, you know, the death of your mother or your spouse or your child, even worse. Right? So again, that's why in the concrete, this can often seem um, right, totally insufficient, and I can't understand it. And so yes, I admit, this is a blackboard answer, but it's a true answer. So let's talk about um, God's creation. So in the creed, we say God, um, I believe in God the Father, um, Almighty, maker of of things, of all things, visible and invisible. All right, what are the invisible things? Angels. So um, it's part of the Catholic faith that God has created not only bodily beings like us, but also purely spiritual beings that we can't see, and therefore we, science can never say anything about angels, right? So there's no branch of physics that deals with angels um, because they're not visible, right? They don't have bodies. And, but nevertheless, we think that God has made um, myriads, that means, so that's a number used in the Bible about angels, um, which means um, a huge number, right? So God has made probably as many angels as he's made human beings. We don't know, I'm just guessing, I have no idea. Because there's no way to count them, right? Because we can't see them. But it's reasonable to think that there are many, many, many angelic beings, just as there are many rational beings. And, um, and we're not, therefore, at the top of creation. I, we like to think, I think that we're the, right? So we go to the zoo and we think, of all these beings, we're the king. And that's true. But we're not the king with respect to St. Michael the Archangel or Raphael or Gabriel, etc. Jesus is, but we're not. So God has made not only visible beings, but angelic beings, and that means that in the order of creation, we're actually only halfway up. So if we take this is the hierarchy of creation, we're right there in the middle. And let's call this the visible physical world. 
in other words, bodily world, right, material world. And we're part of it, but we're also part of a spiritual world. And that's why we're right in the center of these two worlds. That's our place. So I don't, I don't think most people intuitively get this, right, that I'm not the top. And it's not as if there's no hierarchy at all, which somebody might say, well, everything is equal, but nobody can really think that. Um, but we're actually halfway up the scale, the highest of material beings and the lowest of spiritual beings by nature, simply by nature. And that means that above us, there are beings that have reason, right? That's what makes us in his image much stronger than ours, right? And those are the angels, all right? So we're... We're this intersection, and that's a very special place. So even though we're not the top, we have a hugely important place in God's plan, and it's to be right in the center, to belong to both the visible and the spiritual world. Okay, it's the lowest of the spiritual and the highest of the material. And so angels are pure spirits, no bodies, they're invisible, they're immortal. They're immortal because they don't have bodies, right? What dies in us is our body, not our soul. So we're composed. So we, we said we're in the intersection. We're in the intersection because we're composed of a body that's corruptible and material and a soul that's spiritual and indestructible. Now each of us has a soul that can't be pulverized by anything, right? Because it's not physical, right? Our soul. It's not material. Um, whereas angels are just that, right? They're pure spirits with no body at all. And that means that they're immortal, that they didn't exist from all eternity. God made them at the beginning, right? So um, we could read that first line of Genesis. Um, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And we could take the heavens to mean the angelic world and the earth to mean the material world. Right? So they had a beginning, angels, but they have no end because there's nothing in them that can be destroyed. Right? And what do they do? They have intellect and will. They know and they love. Or at least that's what they're made for. Right? And all the angels were made good. But not all remained good. Because just as I said, our whole life is a trial, God made the angels also with a kind of trial so that they could merit um, heaven in their own way, in an angelic way. Or if they rebelled against that, um, they would lose it, heaven. Right? And we know that some angels, we don't know the exact numbers, but it's reasonable to think um, a part, right? So a part of this, it's certain that a part of the angelic world fell. So well, they now, right? The angels ceaselessly contemplate God face to face. But when he made them, they didn't yet contemplate God face to face. Because that's reward. Um, because God is infinitely above an angel. So even though the angels have far greater intellects than we do, and an angel can't see God face to face, because God's infinitely above the angel as he's infinitely above us. Right? So angels knew that all the angels at the moment of their creation knew that God made them and that he was good but they also couldn't see him directly. And therefore, they could think that something else might be better than God, like themselves and their own choices, 
And so this is how, so we might ask, how could Satan fall? Well, Satan, even though, so it's, it's part of Christian tradition that Satan was actually the greatest, the highest angel. That is, the angel with the most intelligence. Um, and yet, that didn't preserve him from falling. That's very instructive. Um, it's not intelligence that keeps us from sin. Right, that's, this is very important. It's the heart, right, that keeps us from sin. And intelligent people can sin even more destructively than less intelligent people because they know how to do evil more intelligently. And, and that's how it was with Satan. All right, so what was the fall, right? So we, this is very mysterious. We can't fully understand it, but we know that it's true that the sum of the angels, by a free and irrevocable choice, chose to prefer themselves somehow than to love God above themselves. And we also know we can do that too. And that would be what leads to damnation. Right? Ultimately, every creature is given a choice. Right? We don't usually, we never see the choice simply like that. But the choice is to make ourselves the center of the universe for ourselves or to make God the center of our heart. In other words, to do everything we do ultimately for God or for myself, right? And it's, that's true of every rational creature made in God's image. We're given that choice, right? And some of the angels chose to make God their, their center, right? That would be the holy angels now. But the devils or demons are those angels that chose to make themselves their center. And here's the difference. We, we said we're given a lifetime to, to repent, um, to win God's mercy, to, to get up again, etc. Um, angels don't. And the reason is because they're higher than us. They don't, um, because they see more clearly, they don't rethink what they've chosen. Because they're choosing in the light, as it were. So because angels are higher, they don't get a chance to repent. And that's because they don't think like we do, reasoning things out, ah, oh, from this. We call that discursive thinking to kind of go step by step in thinking about things. Angels don't do that. They see the whole thing all at once, and they choose all at once, and they never repent what they've chosen. So it's really interesting that even though we're lower than the angels, we can do something they can't, and that is repent. All right, so the angels that fell... Never repent. It's not as if God's not merciful to them. It's that it's not part of their nature to rethink. And God respects the natures that he's made. All right, so that's... So by a free and irrevocable choice, they rejected God and his kingdom, giving rise to hell. So hell would be where Satan is. And it's not so much... A, right, it's not a place because he doesn't have a body. It's a state, a state of non-communion a state of division or isolation. Because that's ultimately what he chose. That's what he preferred. Right? God is just, and part of his justice is giving us what we choose, even if we choose wrongly. Right? He gives, so we might wish, boy, you take me too seriously. But 
we, that's what we've been saying from the beginning, right? He takes us seriously and makes us his cooperators. And likewise, he takes us seriously and respects our choices. But because we're human beings and we are not as intelligent as angels, he gives us second chances as long as we live. So hell, there is no physical hell fire. For, for angels. For yeah. angels, no. Right. For our souls, yes. Well, because we're bodily as well as as spiritual, the hell will somehow respect that. But again, not as, don't, it's, the imaginations that we make of hellfire miss the point, right? The essence of hell isn't suffering physical pain, it's separation and isolation, because we've made ourselves the center. And one more question. On okay. Top of that. So, a soul that has had a human experience, if it ascends into heaven, I know that there are, there's a hierarchy. Uh huh. In heaven. Yeah. So, with the spiritual beings created who never had a physical experience, right. are you still an angel, technically? Like, if you've had a, a physical experience? No, so we're, yeah, so, so we're not, right? We never will be angels in heaven. In heaven, we're not angels, we remain human beings. But here's the beauty God, and we're made, right, in His image, we're called to greater likeness, and according to our love, will be our place in heaven. So if we think of this as heaven, and there still be grades there in heaven, but the grades aren't determined by nature, right? Nature, by nature, all angels are higher than all human beings. But in heaven, there's going to be a queen, and that's a human being, Mary. And there's a king, and that's Jesus. And so in heaven, the grades of heaven aren't according to nature, but are according to love, a love that we freely Choose through God's grace. Okay? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll always be human beings, but we'll be in a society together with human beings and angels. That is heaven. Okay, so angels had to make this choice. Some made it well, some didn't. Okay, we already talked about the six days. But basically what the catechism tells us is that in the six days of creation, each thing, God creates in stages, and each thing receives its share of goodness and perfection. And part of the um, order of nature is beauty. Right? So God, in creating the world, has put order in it, which is both truth and goodness and beauty. Right? And so that's part of the divine plan and that he's made um, the world beautiful, and he's made, in particular, human beings beautiful. In other words, we've, just, because, just as we have a higher being than the dolphin, um, we've got a higher beauty. And that beauty is partly bodily, but principally spiritual. Right? And um, the body reflects a spiritual beauty. We said that we're the summit of the visible creation, but the lowest of the spiritual creation. I think we already answered that. Yeah, so why did God make us? This goes back to the beginning, right? He made us um, to know, serve, and love him. He's made everything to show his glory in some way, just simply by being what it is, right? So the mountaintops show the glory of God, but the mountaintops don't know that. And we're given, because we're given reason, we're given the ability to, um, to know 
who we're from and to glorify him um, voluntarily, right, freely. And that's what we're ultimately made for, right, to love him back. We spoke about that when we looked at the Our Father a couple of weeks ago when we were doing prayer, and we said that the very first petition, hallowed be thy name, means that your name be glorified. In other words, that every creature give you glory. All right, creatures below us give glory just by their being, but we alone can see that order and freely glorify him. And that means to thank him. And so um, God made um, the original couple at the beginning, and the idea would be that from the one couple, um, all mankind descends to be a unity, right? So we know that in reality, mankind is hugely divided, right? And every time we read the papers, we see that more. Um, but that's not God's plan, right? God's plan is that we form a communion, a unity. And that unity we find um, in the world most in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is precisely a unity that bridges all cultures, nations, languages, and to, re, um, to restore that unity, that was God's original plan. Okay, so let's look a little bit at human nature. So um, we're composed of a body and a soul, right? Our bodies are corruptible, drawn from other bodies, right? And so we know... So biology basically studies the origin of the human body, right? Through the, the reproductive act and the, the union of the egg and the sperm. But it, our soul is spiritual and therefore can't be created by the mother and father, right? So parents, so we have a son um, and we, yes, my wife and I cooperated in making his body, but his soul is beyond our cooperation, right? God has to make every human soul out of nothing. And he does. Each one of us is, um, yes, the work of our parents and our body and the work of God alone in making our souls out of nothing at the moment of conception. That is the moment of the union of the egg and sperm, right, in our, in our mother's body. And it's a spiritual soul, meaning of a different order than, say, a rat. So rabbits also have souls. And that might seem weird at first to think of animal souls. But um, animals are alive, and therefore there's got to be a principle of life in them that makes a live rabbit different from a dead rabbit. Sorry. But, um, and so we call that principle of life in the rabbit a soul like ours. But ours alone we call spiritual. So a spiritual soul is a soul that not, uh, doesn't come from matter and doesn't return back to matter. Once God's created it, it will remain for all eternity. All right, so our bodies are going to return to dust. Right, that's Ash Wednesday. If you go into Mass on Ash Wednesday and you get dust on your forehead, from dust, right, you are drawn to dust, you will return. Our bodies, but not our souls. Our souls were made by God and, um, and are indestructible. We can actually see this in Genesis chapter 2 when it speaks about making... Um, Adam, the first man, he drew his body. So it, Genesis speaks of God taking the dust of the earth to form Adam's body. But it then speaks of him breathing into him a living soul. 
right? And so we can see there the kind of twofold origin of the human person. Body from dust or from other bodies, but the soul breathed in by God himself, okay? And that's not just for Adam, but for every human being. And so this is the odd thing, again, about human nature, is because we're at this crossroads, we've got a spiritual soul and a mortal body, and that means a lot of paradoxes, right? Our soul lives forever, but our body turns to dust. And our soul desires complete happiness, but on this earth we can't find complete happiness, um, etc. Um, our spirit sometimes, um, and our um, sense appetite, that is our, our passions, are in conflict. And again, that comes from the fact that we've got a rational appetite, because, meaning, so we've got a human will, which desires the good, but we've got passions that move to sensual satisfaction. And there's a discord there, right? And that comes from our place in creation, okay? So far so good? Yeah, Kathy. But it wasn't that way before the fall. That's right, I'm about to get to that. Fantastic. So it wasn't that way before the fall. So in the beginning, God made man not simply as we are today. So let's talk about that for a minute. We find in Genesis 2 that our, so it's an odd, Genesis, one, there are two accounts of creation. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, um, it's told more anthropomorphically. In other words, it's, um, Genesis chapter 1 is six days. Genesis chapter 2, Adam is created first. And it's kind of surprising. Because in Genesis chapter 1, it says male and female, he created them. But in Genesis 2, Adam is created first, and then Adam is alone, and God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. Let us make a helper fit for him. And so that's showing us something very important about the human being, that it's not good for us to be isolated. Right? We're meant for communion. And then the second thing is, um, so, so what does God do? Um, not good for Adam to be home. Let's make a helper fit for him. God brings the animals to Adam. And Adam names the animals, but he doesn't find a helper fit for himself in the cow, the dog, the donkey, etc. Right? And, so, um, and then God puts Adam to sleep. And from his side, from his rib, he creates Eve he builds Eve, is the Hebrew word, um, and, um, and Adam awakes, sees Eve, and exults. And it's like, we could say, the first song in human history. Ah, at last, flesh of my flesh, bone from my bone, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. All right, so that's the, and they were naked, Adam and Eve, and not ashamed, so that's the original state. And so we can see that at the end there, there's something different from our human experience, right? We're, when we're naked, right? If it's like sometimes people have nightmares of um, kind of being in class, totally naked, and um, how did this happen, and what do I do? And so um, in human history, um, all of human history is marked by um, we're naked and ashamed. In other words, there's a discord between our passions, and our reason and will, which causes shame as a kind of defensive reaction to protect um, something from being objectified. 
And so we can see that Adam and Eve were created um, in a state of harmony that we don't have anymore. And we see how that happened in the next chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis. So in chapter 3 of Genesis, Eve is tempted right, by the serpent, which is really interesting. So in the garden, God allowed a serpent to tempt. And the serpent is a symbol of, um, serpents don't really tempt us, right? The serpent is a symbol of someone else, Satan. So God allowed, so Satan fell right from the beginning. Satan now wants company in rebellion. And so Satan tempts our first parents as he tempts us. And God allows it. So you might ask, why does God allow them to be tempted? Well, we said there's a good reason for it. God gives us a trial, and he gives us difficulties so that we can overcome them, just as we do raising children and training for sports or any other thing, playing music. And so it's, it's not that the difficulty is bad, but that Adam and Eve were meant to overcome the temptation. All right? So how did Satan tempt Eve? So God made it in this. So they were made in a garden. They were made to till the garden, right, to, to tend it. So work is a good thing. They were made to work. Um, but in an original state of harmony in which death wouldn't have entered if they had been faithful, right? So in the middle of the garden, there's a tree of life indicating two things, that they wouldn't die, but also, it's reason to think, tree of divine life. Right? We said made in his image, but called to greater likeness. And there's another tree, knowledge of good and evil, right? And they're given the commandment not to eat of that one, because if they do, they shall die. So, that's the, so we could speak of Adam and Eve, and our first parents, being made with an original covenant by God. Right, what's a covenant? A covenant is like a marriage. Right? So a covenant is a mutual agreement right, between two parties, as in a marriage, husband and wife, who mutually give themselves to one another with a condition, right? a condition of fidelity. Right? So marriage is the best example of a covenant. So the, the husband and wife each vows fidelity to one another until death. And so God made a covenant with Adam, which would be like a wedding between God and Adam and Eve, mankind. But there was a condition to be faithful to God's governance and the condition of breaking, if they were to break that, um, death would enter the world. And they would lose that state of original. They would lose the covenant that God had freely given to them. Right? And part of that covenant would be eating of the tree of life. Okay, how should we understand this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It seems like knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. And that's exactly what Satan says to Eve. Right? This is certainly a good thing. And if God's withholding it from you, it's because he wants to keep you down. Right? He wants to... He wants to govern and be king and decide, determine good and evil, and he wants to keep that from you. Right? So that's, kind of, that's the temptation. And if you think about it, we too are tempted in similar ways. Right? Every time we sin, it's because we think we know better than the Ten Commandments. Right? That's exactly what was happening with Adam and Eve. And the way we should think about eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is wanting to have dominion over good and evil. Um, so I think we spoke about this earlier. The Bible sometimes speaks of knowledge as dominion. And so the fact is, can any creature, 
simply, can we simply say, you know, we're going to define right here in this room for ourselves what's good and what's evil, just from ourselves. Now, we're tempted to do this, right? Every time, and this is what sin is, to make myself the judge of good and evil rather than to receive it. But the fact is only the creator can determine what's good or evil because he's made it. Right? And he's made it for a reason and an end to get to himself, to fulfill the covenant. And so if I want to make myself the master of the covenant, that means breaking the covenant because it means not wanting to be in relation with God, but wanting to be self-sufficient and autonomous. And that's why I say that it's not just Adam and Eve who are tempted in this way, but each one of us is in the whole course of our life to make myself the one who judges good or evil or to receive it from my conscience and from, from God's revelation. All right? So in choosing to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they were choosing to really break themselves from receiving from God. And, and so the result is they separated themselves from God, from relationship with him. Not for good, right? Because they weren't dead yet, and they had chance to repent. And they, Genesis tells us they lived a long time after that. So it's reasonable to think that Adam is in heaven and Eve, but not, um, not the same way they were when they broke the covenant, but rather by repenting. Okay. How did we get into this? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get to that. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, yeah, so God made man, um, male and female, and again, I think we mentioned that, for communion. Each, God, if we look out in the world, we see that um, God makes the world in a, in a complementary way. He makes angels and human beings, and the whole is greater than each part, just simply if it were um, only that part. Right? And so part of the complementarity is making man male and female, and calling them to communion. And that's part of what we see in them being naked and not ashamed, right? In other words, each one had their own gift. Adam, a paternal gift. Eve, a maternal gift. And their bodies reflected that. They were naked and not ashamed and in harmony with each other in their complementarity, all right? So we can speak of um, the original condition of Adam and Eve as being, having three levels. So they had human nature, as we do. But above that, there was an original harmony. And we could say that included naked but not ashamed. Um, let's call that, I'm gonna call that integrity. Sorry, that's a technical term. Integrity in theology means that they didn't experience the conflict between passion and reason that we do. And that, that um, conflict is called concupiscence. Sorry, don't, you don't have to worry about the technical term. The, the meaning is we experience disharmony. And that disharmony of our passions and our reason um, gets a technical name, concupiscence. Right? And that is a, it's natural in the sense that a rationale would have that, but it's, it wasn't the way they were first made because they were given a gift of original harmony 
above human nature. Right? They were given a gift higher than simply human nature as we have it. And part of that gift was to be in harmony with one's own body. In other words, that one's passions wouldn't have been in conflict with one's reason, um, as we often experience when we're tempted, say, to something like lust or gluttony or anger. Right? So when, in all of those cases, um, when we're tempted, it can, our body has a movement prior to my reason's ability to say no. In other words, I feel an inclination. That doesn't mean I've sinned. This is not the same as sin. This is what enables us to be tempted to sin. But we don't sin unless we freely consent to it. All right? But Adam and Eve weren't tempted in that kind of a way. Right? So the original sin was not a sin of lust or gluttony or anger. It was a sin of pride, which is a spiritual sin which angels also fell. In other words, Adam and Eve's first sin was like Satan's sin, a spiritual sin to want to make themselves the center rather than God. They couldn't have sinned in a merely carnal way. We now can sin in both ways. All right, so I don't want to give you the impression that in the original creation, Adam and Eve couldn't sin because obviously they sinned. But they couldn't have sinned out of weakness as we now do, only out of pride, as we also can. All right? In other words, we can sin in two ways, through pride and through kind of being tempted and by passions in a sin of weakness. And um, the sins of pride are graver than the sins merely of weakness. And then above this, though, this wasn't, and part of it also was a harmony that there would be no death. So no concupiscence, no death. And then it, it seems reasonable to think no suffering because there wouldn't have been anything in the garden that would have caused suffering because they had harmony. And then above that, though, there's an original holiness. And we see this in what happens after the fall. So right after the fall, Adam and, so Eve eats, gives to Adam, Adam eats, and they both sin, and they hide from God. Right? And it's beautiful how the Bible speaks of it, that in the, um, they knew that God was looking for them um, in the cool of the day. And that shows us something about before their sin, they had an intimacy with God. That's a kind of metaphor, walking with God in the cool of the day, right? Because lovers do that. Couples do that, right? Walk at dusk. It's romantic. And so the fact was God was walking with them in that romantic kind of way, showing that they had an intimacy with him. So that's the original holiness. They, had, they walked with God, and we call that grace. Grace and charity is a love for God um, as a friendship kind of love, a friendship love for God. And we see that Adam and Eve were created with a friendship love for God. So the three levels are human nature, this original harmony, and an original holiness. And the highest is this original holiness. And so we call this supernatural, to have intimacy with God. All right. They break the covenant, what happens? What's the consequence? They lose the gifts above human nature that were part of an original covenant. In other words, by breaking the covenant, they got to keep 
what is ours, human nature, and to transmit human nature, but not to transmit what they lost for themselves. In other words, Adam and Eve were created to be um, agents of providence in a major way. In other words, they, were, they received human nature with these gifts of harmony and holiness to pass on to all human beings over the centuries. And they were given these gifts in trust so that if they broke the covenant, they wouldn't be able to pass these on. But if they were faithful to the covenant, they would have passed on human nature enriched with harmony and holiness. All right, what happened in reality? They broke the covenant, and these two levels of gift didn't, don't get transmitted when human nature is passed on from generation to generation. In other words, when our parents generate us, we come into this world, how? With human nature, made in the image of God, rational animals, but without that harmony of integrity, without immortality, and without the original holiness. And that's true of every human being, um, naturally, and there's only been one exception, or maybe I should say two exceptions, um, and that is Jesus, obviously, as our Redeemer, and his mother. And we're going to look at that later on. I thought we call that the Immaculate Conception. Mary came into this world as God intended all of us to come into this world, right? If Adam and Eve had been faithful. But they weren't, and we come into this world lacking harmony and holiness. All right, so we can say that's the problem set up by original sin at the very beginning. And we might wonder, well, why, why did God allow this to happen? Well, he allowed it to happen, we said, for, to draw some greater good. And what is that greater good? A plan to restore it in a better way. And that better way is this way, through becoming man in the fullness of time and dying for us out of love and therefore meriting this grace back. All right, so in, the fact is, this grace which Adam lost for us Jesus won for us. And St. Paul speaks about that. It's in Romans chapter 6. No, Romans chapter 5, sorry. Where he speaks of, um, from one man, Adam, death came into the world, and from one man, Jesus Christ, life comes into the world. But where death abounded and sin abounded, grace more abounds. All right, so Jesus gives us something better than what Adam lost. So Jesus on Calvary merited every grace. And that means meriting this grace to be returned to us. The, what's the ordinary way that we get that grace back? Anybody? What's, what's that? Okay, yeah, so he made, he's made a new and everlasting covenant, Jesus, by which it's restored. But there's some part of the covenant by which we get that back, some act that we do. It's kind of the purpose of this class. <laughs> baptism, right. So baptism is the ordinary way that God 
gives us what would have been given to us at our conception. Right? And that's why it's good to baptize babies um, close to conception, right? early on in their life, so that they can receive back what God had intended them to receive at the very beginning. All right? And there's, we'll do this later on, but you might ask, well, what about all the people who aren't baptized? And God can also give it back by someone desiring baptism and repenting of sin. And you might then ask another question, what about all the people who don't know of it to desire it? Um, God can grant it back by repentance that implicitly is desiring it if they knew about it. In other words, God is merciful. He's got a plan. He's able to give this grace to anyone who has a good will, um, which comes from a gift of his grace and cooperating with it. We'll do that later on, okay? But we'd say the ordinary way is baptism, and the extraordinary way would be desire for baptism that includes repentance, okay? That includes believing in God insofar as we can, loving him, hoping in him, and repenting. Okay, so Adam's sin has consequences for every human being that comes into this world. Right, and that's why we say we're born in original sin. But baptism forgives original sin by supplying. In other words, original sin is essentially coming to this world without grace. And that's why baptism remedies original sin by returning that grace. But there's a, a difference. Baptism doesn't restore integrity. And so we have to battle against concupiscence. And the, there's a reason for this. Christ um, wants us, that battle enables us to merit and cooperate. Um, and so um, this part of the covenant isn't immediately restored. It will be in heaven. But right now, it's only this part that gets restored. And that's the far more important part. So in summary, Yes, there are consequences of original sin. We've got to die. We experience disharmony in ourselves, in our passions, in our human relations. Um, and um, we need to get this holiness. But Christ has given us a remedy that is superabundant, um, but that in requires a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle is good, but hard. So as a result of the fall, um, work now becomes hard, right? So Adam and Eve would have worked in the garden. That work is a glorious thing, but now there's the sweat of the brow. Um, Adam and Eve would have um, had children the normal way as we do, but now there's the pain of labor, etc. And we can see similar things all through human life. And those, yes, they're evils, physical evils, but they make possible um, sacrificial love, which is a great good. One last thing. You might be wondering, how could Adam and Eve's sin have such consequences? It's true. We didn't do it. How is it? It's the good of headship. headship. I'm using it in the sense of each of us has responsibility over others. Right? That's Every parent has a responsibility, not just for themselves, but for their children, right? for their family, for their spouses, etc. And if we mess up, what happens? Others suffer. Does that mean that we shouldn't be given responsibility? No, everybody wants responsibility. It means that we shouldn't abuse responsibility. All right, 
Adam and Eve were given a glorious and great and gigantic responsibility because they were the original heads of the human race. They abused their headship, but Christ is now the new head of the human race. And that's why we can speak of Christ as the new Adam, our new head who's infinitely better than our first head. All right, so yes, Adam and Eve's sin had long-reaching consequences because they were our first parents given a very beautiful responsibility, right? Responsibility is good. We just shouldn't blow it, all right? But God has provided a better headship that cannot be abused or blown, that of Jesus Christ. And so in the Easter vigil, when you come into the church, the, there's a beautiful um, canticle or song right at the beginning in which the deacon, one of the things he says, you know, he speaks about the glory of this night at the Easter vigil. We're celebrating Christ's conquest over sin and death. And one of the things he says is, oh, happy fault, that of Adam and Eve, that won for us so great a redeemer. And so, yes, original sin, great evil, but it won for us a better redeemer. Right? And we'll go into that next time. So bring questions about original sin. You might have noticed, I'm sorry, I've run over time, but the way I presented it is maybe different than the way it's usually presented in Protestant circles, as if human nature got corrupted. So human nature is still here. It's just that it lost, we lost gifts above human nature. And that's the tragedy. It's as if we've been stripped of those gifts of the first covenant. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of creation and the gift of redemption, the greater gift of redemption through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.